Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened. And you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat." My four-year-old son is at a stage of his life where he is asking why quite frequently into things that, you know, just almost over and above. This morning as I was coming down the stairs, he asked me the question. He said, Dad. I said, yeah, no, what is it? He said, why do fruit flies like fruit? (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, you know, well, God made them that way. And then, you know, I turned around and I thought, I could have probably thought of something funnier than that or whatever. You know, I'm being so serious with the kid and the whole thing. But he's just always asking the question, why? And that's something that we have when we're young, but it's something that doesn't go away when we grow old. Just the manner of the questions just change. And there are many questions that all of us have all the time that are very difficult, very hard for us to answer. And as we come to Genesis chapter 3, what we have is we have God's answer to many of the questions that we have as a human race and that we carry with us all throughout our life. We often ask the question, why is the world the way it is? Why do we get sick? Where does sickness come from? Why are there birth defects? What's the story with mental illness? How, how come people are mental, mentally ill? Why do we have to work Why is there so much, you know, in in the way that we do? I mean, we like to work, but why is it the way that it is, you know, in the world? Why is there so much corruption? Why so much oppression? Why is there theft? Why is there murder? Why is there addiction? Why are there lies? And is there so much dishonesty within the world? Why are there ticks? And stink bugs, you know, who made these things? And why do they do what they do? You know, why are they the way they are? Why do I feel empty inside? Where does that come from, this void that I'm constantly trying to fill? And probably the greatest question of all that plagues humanity is why do we die? Why does mankind have to die? And these are the great question marks that people carry around in in, in book after book after news story after documentary on all of the issues in the world And yet the question still remains somewhere in us, why to these things? And so as we come now to Genesis chapter 3, God gives to us the clear answer to why all of those things exist in the world. The answer to many of the great questions of humanity, why? And the answer is the fall. And so chapter 3 answers the question of how the fall of mankind and the curse that followed that fall came to pass upon the earth. And so it's given to us the answer of how it happened and then what are the immediate effects of the curse in Adam's world and what are the long-term effects of the curse that exist even unto uh, our day that we live in here. Now, um, we don't know how much time has passed um, between Adam and Eve being placed in the garden and their, their, their task to keep it in the, in the paradise that they're dwelling in and the time that the events of these place, uh, things take place here that are in our text. What we do know is that Adam was 130 years old when he had his first son. And so somewhere in that 130-year span between the time that Adam was created 
And the time that his first son was born, these events took place. And so was it 10 years? Or, or was it within the first couple of months? Or was it 100 years before, uh, before Adam and Eve had this encounter? How far was it from when God gave the command to when these things took place? We don't know the answer to it. But we know that it happened and we know that it happened before they had any of their children. It tells us at the beginning of the passage that the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Now, what we have here is the first mention of the serpent, and we also have the first encounter in the Bible with this character that we call the devil or Satan, or the dragon, or Lucifer, as he is known by his various titles throughout Scripture. What we must understand is that the serpent that is speaking with Eve, the serpent itself is not the devil. We're told that it was one of the creatures that God had made, but the serpent was being used by the devil And the serpent throughout the Bible now becomes a symbol of the devil uh, all the way from Genesis unto the book of Revelation. We read in Revelation chapter 20, at the very end in the closeout of God's history upon the earth, it tells us in verse 1, it says that John writes, and he said, I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold on the dragon." that old serpent, and then he tells us who he is, which is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. And so the serpent that we read of here in Genesis chapter 3 was a creature in the garden who is now being employed by the devil, Satan, who is also called the dragon in the Bible. Now what we know of Satan the character, is that he is an angel. He is not God's counterpart. He isn't an evil being that carries with him the same level of power, the same level of status that somehow, you know, God is the yin and Satan is the yang and and there's these two cosmic powers that battle it out within the heavens. That's not the case at all. Satan is an angel. He's a being that was created by God. And the Bible tells us that the angels were created as ministering spirits or serving spirits that were created to minister unto God's desires and specifically to the needs of man. God had appointed them for those things. And so they're spirit beings created by God to serve his purposes. Now, what we understand about the angelic realm is that the angelic realm is able to interact with the human realm. It's also able to influence the human realm and cause things to happen in the physical realm driven by things that are invisible that can't be seen. We also understand by the scriptures that the angelic realm, in some instances, is able to control the physical realm. And in some other instances, we understand that the angelic realm is able to possess the physical realm when uh, there is an opening or an opportunity and a desire in uh, an angelic being to do so. And so we understand those things. Now, what that means is that there are invisible spiritual strings attached to some of the deeds that are done on earth. Many of the things that happen on a daily basis are being driven and influenced and controlled by forces that are unseen to you and me. We can't see what's going on. We see this pictured throughout the scripture. There was a time in the life of the prophet Elisha that one of the antagonistic enemy kings of the nation had it in for Elisha the prophet. And so this king, Ben-Hadad, he ordered his entire army to surround just one man, Elisha. So Elisha was there sleeping in his tent with his servant. And when the servant arose in the morning to go out of the tent, he saw that the entire host of the Syrian army was surrounding the tent. And he came in and he woke up Elisha and he said, hey, we're in big trouble. We're being surrounded by the king, the the enemy's army. And Elisha said, don't worry about it. He said, don't worry about it. Come out and see what's going on. And Elisha said, no, 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 you don't understand. They that be with us are more than they which be with them. And then he said, Lord, open his eyes. 
And the servant went out and he looked and behind the enemy army, the entire mountain range and valley was filled with horses and chariots of fire. And God just gave the command and the entire army was wiped out with blindness and Elisha and his servant escaped. We see other instances where Daniel was praying And as the answer came three weeks after he began his intercession, he was told that God sent the answer three weeks ago. But there was a war in the invisible realm, and the message was hindered from reaching Daniel until three weeks after he asked the question. And so we learn, not just in Elisha's life, Daniel's life, but from Genesis to Revelation, that there are spiritual, invisible influences that drive the things that are going on in the earth. And that is why one of the gifts that God has given to believers, to you and I as Christians, is called the gift of discerning of spirits. Because sometimes it's essential for us and needful for us to understand where an influence is coming from or or what's driving something that's going on within our lives. And that's something that we should pray for and something that we should rely upon from time to time so that we can understand why what's happening is happening. Paul said to the Ephesian church, he said that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual powers in high places. Meaning that when there's a conflict in our life, whether it be with another person or an organization or sometimes even within ourselves, that the source of that conflict isn't in the physical realm. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but the source of that conflict is in a spiritual realm and thus we need discerning of spirits to understand where it's coming from, why it's happening, and how to handle those situations and navigate our way through them. Now, in the angelic realm, we understand from the Bible that there is order. There's rank and order. We know of, as we're told in the Bible, about a ranking of the angels called the seraphim. They're only mentioned once in the Bible. It's in Isaiah chapter 6. And Isaiah sees a vision of the throne room, and he sees the seraphim that were declaring the holiness of God, and they were right in the throne room where the presence of God was. Another realm or ranking of the angels that we read of in the scripture is the cherubim. And the cherubim are those that are most often spoken of in the Bible. We read about cherubs at the end of this chapter. We won't get there tonight, but we'll see them hopefully next week that God set to guard the way back to the tree of life. We read about cherubim that were to be molded out of gold to overshadow the mercy seat when Moses constructed the ark, the golden box that was later used to contain the Ten Commandments, the stone tablets of the law. In Ezekiel's prophecy in chapter 1, we read a description of what the cherubim look like, and it's outstanding. Four faces, eyes all over their body. I mean, if we saw one of those things, we'd probably, you know, wet ourselves. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's an amazing description of what they look like and how they move and how they serve God and how quickly they respond to the will of God and what they're able to do. We also read in the Bible about individual angels that we don't know their rank. We read about Michael, who's called the archangel. There's only one, only one in the Bible that's called the archangel. It's Michael the archangel. And it seems as though his position is to guard, to oversee what happens in Israel, specifically in Jerusalem. That's where Michael always is, dealing with the land and and the city that God set apart for himself. And so Michael, for that purpose. We read of Gabriel, and Gabriel, we don't know his title or what ranking he is, but what we see is that Gabriel is always involved with bringing messages to people specifically about the coming of Christ. And so that's his mission. He's a messenger angel in all of that. And then the other named angel in the Bible is the character that we have before us in our study tonight, and that is none other than Satan or Lucifer or the devil himself. Now, what we understand in the Bible about Lucifer or Satan is that he was created by God and he was in the order of the cherubim. And Satan was not always an evil angel. When he was first created, he served God's purposes 
But something happened along the way. We know what it is because it tells us in Ezekiel chapter 28. And that's a passage of scripture that you want to be familiar with. And perhaps you want to write that down. Because um, the Lord tells us what happened to Satan and how an angel of light and an angel that was good and served God's purposes became the devil that we know him to be uh, today. And so Ezekiel writes and he tells us in chapter 28, verse 12, he says, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus. Now, the king of Tyrus is not speaking of a man but it's speaking of the spirit that was driving that king. We know that because of what he says immediately following. He says, and say unto him, thus saith the Lord God, you seal up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, Topaz and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald and the carbuncle and gold, the workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that you were created. Wow. Think about that. Satan was a walking church organ. He had pipes and tabrets, musical instruments built right into his being. It says that he was created. It says that you, in verse 14, are the anointed cherub that covers. And I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. You have walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. You were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created until iniquity was found in you. So what we're given by the prophet Ezekiel is a profile description of what Lucifer was prior to his fall. And we're told that he was full of wisdom. Earlier in the chapter, it's alluded that he was wiser than Daniel, meaning that he could know things that no one else could know. That's the wisdom that Daniel was known for. We're told that he was perfect in beauty. We're told that he was in the Garden of Eden and that the jewels of Eden were his covering. We're told in verse 14 that he is the anointed cherub that covers. Now that's interesting because it helps us to understand what it was that Satan was originally created for. The word covers that he uses there at the beginning of the verse, it's a word that means a screen, a fence, a cover, a protection, or that which hedges in. And so he was given some position, some honored position, probably of watching over the Garden of Eden. He was the angel that was in charge of it. But at the same time, he also had access into heaven. He would walk up and down, we're told, upon the stones of fire, and that he was in the mountain of God. He had access into the very presence of God, and yet he had the privileged position of oversight in the Garden of Eden. We're also told... In verse 15, that he was perfect in his ways from the day that he was created. God wants us to know that he was created. He doesn't exist on his own. Until the day that iniquity was found in him. You say, well, what was the iniquity that was in Satan that was found in Satan? Ezekiel goes on to tell us in verse 16. He says, by the multitude of thy merchandise... They have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore, and then goes on to give him his sentence. And then in verse 17, it says, Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. You have corrupted your wisdom by reason of your brightness. And then God um, goes on. And then in verse 18, he says, You have defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thy iniquities. And listen, here it is again. And by the iniquity of thy traffic. And then God again goes on to give sentence, which we'll talk about in just a minute, what God says he's going to do because of these things. What we can gather as we take what Ezekiel and the scriptures tell us about our adversary of what happened to him is that he was, first of all, lifted up in pride because of his beauty. 
And in his pride and in his privilege and in his position and what he was, he somehow got involved in what Ezekiel calls merchandising or trafficking. Now that's a fascinating thing for me to realize, is that in the heavenly realm, there's some form of an economy. In some way and in some form, Satan got involved in trade, in merchandising. We don't know what, we don't know how those details aren't given. But it was through the multitude of his merchandising, and then again, as it tells us later on in the passage, that through the iniquity of his traffic, same word, merchandising, it's the Hebrew word is the same in both places. And so he became some kind of a power broker in a heavenly realm, lifted up in his pride, and somewhere along the way, it filled him with violence. He became discontent with the position that God had given him. He became discontent with the limitations and restrictions that God had placed upon him. And in a desire to grow and to go beyond the boundaries that God had set for him, in his mind, an evil thought began to conjure up. Ezekiel doesn't tell us what that evil thought is, but the prophet Isaiah does. In Isaiah chapter 14, the prophet Isaiah sees and he says in verse 12, he says, Oh, how thou art fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? And here was the thought that came into Lucifer's mind. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Now listen, and I will be like the most high. The desire of Satan was to climb above the position that God had given to him. I will be above all of the other stars, stars being symbolic of the other angels in the passage. That not being enough, he says, I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation. I will control all of the beings of God. And then that not even being enough, he says, yea, no, I'll go further than that. And I will sit myself in the throne of God. I will be like the most high. And so Satan's desire, what came into his mind is that he wanted to overthrow God. Now, five times Satan said, I will, I will be like the most high. I will ascend. I will sit on the congregation. I will. five times. So God responds to Satan's five. I wills with five. I wills of his own in Ezekiel chapter 28, the consequences of Satan's iniquity back in Ezekiel 28 verse 16. Notice what God says. In the middle of the verse, God says, Therefore, I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, reminding him of his position uh, from the midst of the stones of fire. Then in verse 17, in the middle of the verse, God says, I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. And then in the middle of verse 18, he says, and I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. And so God answers Satan's thoughts with five I wills of his own. And what we ultimately know of this being who is initially good, created for good, who sealed up the sum, who is the anointed cherub that covers is that he became Satan, Lucifer. He became the devil himself. He fell from heaven. Now, in Luke chapter 10, the gospel of Luke, in the ministry of Jesus, the 12 apostles had been sent out and 58 others with them to go and serve in ministry. Jesus gave them power to cast out demons and to do cures and miracles in his name and to preach the gospel as they went. And when they came back to tell Jesus of what had happened, they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us when we preach in your name. And Jesus' reply 
to that report was this. He said, behold, I beheld and saw Satan fall like lightning to the earth. And then his application, why he said that, is he says, don't rejoice that you're that the demons are subject to you, but rejoice rather that your names are written in heaven. You say, what in the world is all that about? Well, I share it with you to say Satan's fall was not this cataclysmic war where God had to go in and, you know, surround him and do the... No, it was like lightning. Boom, one instant. God said, you'll be cast to the ground, and he was cast to the ground. But Jesus takes that event to extend a warning to you and I. What's the warning? Beware of spiritual pride. Satan's fall began with spiritual pride, elevating himself in his own mind to think that he was something more than what he actually was. And it became for him a course that ended in his fall, his eventual being cast out as lightning from heaven to the ground. And so Satan fell. Now what's amazing to me is that when Satan comes to Eve, fast forward now to Eve in the garden, possessing the serpent and him now coming to her, Then when he comes to her, he comes to her as an angel of light. He's very unassuming. The dragon or the serpent didn't come in a red suit with a pitchfork and a forked tongue slithering and saying, you know. But literally, the word in the Hebrew for serpent is nechash. And what it literally is translated in other places is shining brass or shining one. And when he came to her, he came as an angel of light. And the Apostle Paul says that when Satan comes to anyone that he comes to, that he transforms himself into an angel of light. He comes in the best form that he possibly can and that he is extremely subtle in his approach. And so the serpent approaches Eve in his subtlety and now he begins to do his work upon her. We're told next in the passage that the serpent was more subtle than any of the other beasts which the Lord God had created. The word subtle, it means cunning, crafty, wise, manipulative, and deceitful. And just in mentioning that he was subtle, it sets us up to understand that he has crooked intentions in his reasonings for why he's coming to Eve. And the first question that I ask when I look in this is, what's his motive? I mean, we kind of know what's going to happen here. He's going to lay this temptation before her. And he's going to take from her the thing that she has. But what's his motive? Why does Lucifer want to make a plan and a plot to come against Eve and ultimately Adam and cause them to eat and disobey God, eating from the tree that he had commanded them? Why? What's his, what gives? What's his deal? Well, part of it is that they're simply made in God's image and they're loved by God. And Satan hates God and he hates everything that God loves. And that's part of the reason, but I don't think that's the main reason. That's not why. Here's what I think the reason is why Satan did what he did, what he wanted in all of this. Satan was given dominion. At one point, he was the anointed cherub that covers. He occupied a place of power, a place of authority, a place of liberty where he was able to traffic and move around and move and shake and manipulate things the way that he wanted. And now that he's fallen, he no longer has those powers. He no longer has that position. But he's cast into the earth. And what he sees before him is he sees a man and a woman that have been given dominion over the planet that they're on. And Satan wants dominion. That's what drives him. He's driven by power. He's driven by a desire to control. That's what he wants. And as long as Adam and Eve have the power and dominion over the world that they do, he's not able to do what he wants and to be who he wants. And so in order for him to be what he wants and do what he wants, he has to first remove from them their right of dominion over the planet that they've been given. That's the motive or the reason behind why he's coming to them. He wants to make them impotent so that he can gain control. And that is the desire and the plan of Satan from that time then, and it exists to be his plan and desire in the world today. He wants control over this planet. He wants control over its systems, over its government, over its systems, over everything in this world. That's what he wants. And so from the moment he saw Adam and Eve in the garden, he began in his mind 
formulating a plan as to how he would make that take place. The Apostle Paul tells us two times in the New Testament that Satan is is a master strategist, and he's extremely wise in accomplishing his purposes. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, Paul tells us what our armor is so that we can stand, listen, against the wiles of the devil. What are wiles? Cunning tools, plans, schemes. He has tools, plans, and schemes in order to accomplish his purposes. Paul said to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians Chapter 2, verse 11, he says that we, the Christians, that we are not ignorant of his devices. What are his devices? iPhone 8, Surface tablet, no, 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 not that kind of device. But he has devices or things that he uses in order to accomplish his will. Now, amazingly, the Bible tells us that we're not ignorant of what those devices are, meaning that we know what Satan does and uses to try to accomplish his will. And that gives us an edge. It gives us the advantage. So what are the wiles of Satan? What are his devices that he uses to accomplish his purposes? We see him using them on Eve here in his desire to overthrow her. So what are they? Number one, if you're taking notes is that he's a master observer. Device number one is the device of simple observation. He watches. He looks at what they do. He looks at where they go. He observes what they know and what they practice. He sees what they're attracted to. He keeps a profile on everyone, and he sees their strengths and their weaknesses, and then he uses all of the data that he collects to eventually form his plot and plan to take down whoever it is that he's coming against. You'll notice in the verse that it says that he came to the woman and he said, why did Satan go to Eve and not to Adam? Well, the Bible tells us in the New Testament book of 1 Peter that the woman, though equal to the man in prominence and importance and in love for God, that she is the more vulnerable vessel. That's what the Bible says. Not that she's less than, but she's more vulnerable, especially when it comes to spiritual things. And Satan observed that. He became an expert on that. And he knew that if he was going to make mankind fall, that his best chance was to go after Eve and not Adam. And so he simply observed where his best way in would be, and then he capitalized on it. He doesn't care who's weak and who's not. And so he goes after her. Now, I have a word here tonight on this. For those of you in the faith, both male and female, that consider yourselves to be more mature, you've been walking with the Lord for a little while, you know a thing or two about him, about his word, about his will and his ways, listen, we have a responsibility and a calling and a commission to look after those that are more vulnerable in the faith. I think sometimes we shy away from that responsibility because we think we're not qualified or because maybe we're not ordained as legit ministers in the quote-unquote professional sense. And so we just kind of remain quiet. And so what we do is we come to church on a given Sunday or Wednesday, and we walk up and down the hallways. We see in the hallway kids. They're, They're Sunday school kids. Maybe they're teenagers. And we don't even know where they're at spiritually, and we just walk right by them. We don't know them. We don't have a rapport or relationship. And so we just kind of walk right by. And we don't talk, we don't interact. Shame on us for doing that. Because we have a responsibility to look out for those that are more vulnerable than we are in the faith. What would happen if you went up to a younger person in the faith, or someone who you knew was a new believer, maybe they're not even younger than you, and you simply just said to them, hey, are you reading your Bible? With a big smile on your face. Hey, how you doing in your walk with Jesus? How's it going in school? Do you, are there any Bible clubs that you're a part of? Ways that you can connect with other Christians in your school? Is there any way that I can pray for you and hold you up in prayer before the Lord? Because what you're doing in that is that you're building a rapport with them. You're, you're opening the door to be able to speak into their lives and strengthen them. Maybe they'll open up to you about their weaknesses and struggles. 
But listen, you're also setting an example for them of what it means to be a mature and strong Christian. Because hopefully someday they move from being in that place of young and immature in the faith to being strong and established in the faith. And they're going to follow the example that they saw. And so they might just walk up and down the hall in church and just leave everyone else to be. Or they might think, you know what? When I was a new believer, the strong in the faith came alongside. They asked me how I was doing. That was normal Christianity. They prayed for me. They encouraged me in the word. They got into my life a little bit. And we have a responsibility to do that. What if Eve was completely in fellowship and conversation with Adam concerning the things that she was thinking and that were going on within her life? Perhaps this wouldn't have happened. But she was more vulnerable. Adam was somewhat blinded to that vulnerability. And thus the temptation was able to be seated within her. And it had its effect. Church, be on the lookout for those that are more vulnerable in the faith than you are. Look for someone to come alongside, to encourage, and to speak into their life. The second device that Satan uses on Eve, that he still uses even today, is the device of probing. Notice that he came to the woman, he asked her a question. He says, Hath God said that you may not eat from every tree of the garden? Now, he purposefully asks a confusing question And he gets the information and facts mixed up. Now he knew what God said. He knew what was there. He was an observer. But he said it in such a way that he could probe within her life to see if she was really rooted in God's word and if there was an element of weakness in what she knew of God or what she knew of God's will for her life. So he asks the question. He says, hey, God said this. And then he waits for her response. He lays something out and he sees how she reacts. Well, she reacts. And she answers the question. She says, no, of the trees of the garden, God says that we may freely eat. But of the tree in the midst of the garden, which he does not call by name, God said that we shall not eat of it, neither shall we touch it, lest we die. Now, at that point, Satan had a bright old smile on his face like the Cheshire cat from Alice in Wonderland. And he said, I got her. got her. She doesn't know God's word. And this is going to be extremely easy for someone as crafty and cunning as me. Because now all I have to do is push her into the tree. All I have to do is get her to touch the fruit. And if she touches the fruit, she's going to see that she didn't die. And because she thinks touching the fruit is going to bring death into her life, when she touches the fruit, it will be easy for me to then get her to take the next step, and then she'll eat the fruit. She wasn't rooted in God's word. She didn't know him the way she was yet to know him and destined or designed to know him. And thus Satan was able to use that weakness in order to bring the temptation in the way that he wanted. In his observation of our lives, Satan watches us. He watches how well we pay attention to the things of God. He makes note of how well we know God's word and God's ways, our defense against him. He watches the things that we're attracted to, the things that draw us away, the things that we take a second look at, the things that we desire inside that we know are contrary to the will of God. He just watches, he observes all of those things, and he just takes notes. He probes, he observes, and then he makes a plan. And at the right time, then he brings a temptation. And that's exactly what he does to Eve next. He then comes to her and he lays the temptation. He says to her, you shall not surely die. You shall not surely die. You're not going to die. The first lie that's ever told in the Bible was Satan to Eve telling her that she is not going to die. Jesus called Satan the father of lies because he was the first liar, the one who lied to Eve. The lie that Satan told Eve was that something bad will not happen if you disobey God. That was the lie that he told. Then the second lie that Satan told is that he maligned God's character. He said, God knows that in the day that you eat of that tree, that your eyes will be opened. That you'll know good and evil and you'll be able to govern just like God. You'll have control. You'll have a dominion and a level of dominion that you don't have now. 
So he maligned God. And then the third lie is he told them something good would happen if they did disobey God. So not only will something bad not happen, you're not going to die, but something good will happen. Your eyes will be opened and your dominion will be carried to a new level, to greater heights that you would never expect. And so he tells her those three lies and then he withdraws from the scene. He's done his work. He laid forth the temptation. He found the weakness, the vulnerability. He laid the bait before her, sowed the thought, the idea in her mind, and then he withdraws from the scene. Now, temptation is not all it takes to get someone to fall. There's actually three things that all have to converge in order for a person to sin. One is temptation. And we know what temptation is, right? Being tempted by something, we understand what temptation is. But temptation alone isn't enough. Temptation must, secondly, be coupled with opportunity. And then opportunity must be coupled with desire. When temptation, opportunity, and desire all converge, we're in a really dangerous place. And what Satan did is that he sowed and sought out a desire. He laid a temptation, and then he had to just wait for the opportunity, which it came. So notice what happens in the text in verse um, 6, the final verse of our passage today. It says that when the woman, there's opportunity. The opportunity came. Eventually, she was next to that tree. And it says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and that it was a tree to be desired to make one wise. Do you see that word desired right there? Temptation, opportunity, and desire all come together now for Eve in this vulnerable position. And when she saw that it was desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and she did eat, and she gave then also to her husband with her, And he also then did eat. And so she falls for this ploy, this temptation. Notice the three things that Eve observed about this tree. She said that it says that she saw that it was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and that it was a tree to be desired to make one wise. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, John tells us that Satan has three things that he uses: the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Notice all three of those played upon Eve in this instance. Good for food, the lust of the flesh. Pleasant to the eyes, the lust of the eyes. Desirable to make one wise, able to rule, the pride of life. All three, the trifecta of temptation coming together. All three, temptation, desire, and opportunity, the trifecta coming together, and the plan works. Eve takes of the tree, Adam takes with it, and Humpty Dumpty fell off the wall hard when they fell in all of this. A couple of conclusions, and then we close tonight as we consider this concept of Satan and his temptation and his desire to take down humanity. I want to give to you five truths and then a couple of remarks, and then we close. Truth number one concerning this situation, and concerning Eve's condition. First of all, she already had the thing that she was being promised. Eve already had the thing that she was being promised. What is it that Satan was holding before her? He was holding her before her the opportunity to have dominion. He said that you'll be as God, knowing good and evil, that you'll have the authority and the power and the dominion of God. That's what you'll be. She already had that. She was already given dominion over the planet. And now what Satan is going to do is he's going to leave her on the other side of this experience with less than what she had when she went into it, even though he promised to give her more. Now, the knowledge to rule is not necessary when you already have dominion. God spared that from her and he kept it to himself because she would rule and reign with him. It's amazing to me to watch as a Christian and as a pastor how a person will often fall into sin 
and then realize on the other side of sin's destruction that they had the thing that they were chasing after all along before they fell into sin to try to get what they already had. We see these days so many young people falling prey to heroin. And what we learn from those that take the drug and that share their experiences is that, yeah, at first there's a high and a rush, but after a while they take the drug just to feel normal. And so they're addicted to something, they're dependent on something, and all they get from it is a feeling of normalcy, the ability to function and feel the way that they're supposed to feel in everyday life. Well, they would feel that way all the time had they never taken the drug in the first place. And now they're dependent on something to make them feel what they would have felt before had they never taken the drug in the first place. They're left off with less than what they had in the beginning. I think of the prodigal son that Jesus talked about in the Gospels. The prodigal son, one day he woke up in his pigsty and he said, hey, I had everything that I was looking for when I was living back in my father's house and I was discontent and I ran away. And how often the truth of a matter when we're tempted by something, tempted to go after something that we don't currently have, if we would stop and wait long enough, we would realize that we already have the thing that we're looking for, that we're ready to run away from God in order to receive. Satan always leaves us with less than what we had before. The second truth that we learn from this story is that man was created for freedom beyond what Satan ever had or ever would, but never freedom independent from God. To be a servant of the Lord is to be free in every other way and in every other capacity. Paul would say to the Galatians that he who is the Lord's bondman is really a free man. That we're free in Christ, but we're never free independent of Christ. If we're independent of God and free of God, then that makes us servants and slaves to everything else. Man was made for freedom. Jesus said, if you know my truth, the truth will make you free. And whom the Son sets free is free indeed. We were made for freedom. Paul said to the Galatians, stand fast, hold firm in the freedom wherewith Christ has made us free. But the freedom that we've been made for can never be freedom from God. It's freedom in God and freedom with God. He's the one that makes us free. So to walk out on God thinking that we're going to get something that God's not giving to us is a complete and total lie. We were made for freedom. Peter and Jude, talking about the servants of Satan, said that the false apostles promise liberty, but they themselves are servants of corruption. They promise liberty, but they themselves are slaves. That's exactly what Satan's doing. He's promising freedom, but he himself is a slave. We cannot rule independent of God. That's truth number three. Every attempt of self-governance apart from God will always end in failure. That's what Satan was telling. You can rule, you can reign, and you don't need God. He's withholding you. And he knows that if you eat from that tree, you'll have something that he wants and he has that he doesn't want you to have. Listen, every attempt to rule apart from God will end in failure. That's true for an individual life. It's true for a governing body. It's true for a system. It's true for a church. It's true for a family. It cannot last. Why? Because to successfully rule in the order and creation of God, you need to have two things that you and I don't have. You know what they are? Omniscience, which is the ability to know everything, and sovereignty, that is the ability to control everything. Anybody here have either of those two things? You know everything, and you can control whatever you want? Because unless you have those powers, you cannot rule and reign successfully because you're going to eventually be thrown a curveball that you don't know how to hit and that you weren't looking for, and it's going to fall. That's why every government attempt of man has fallen since the beginning of creation, and every attempt of man to govern himself will fall ultimately because man was not made to rule apart from God. It cannot be done. And that's true in the big sense, and it's true in the individual sense. Here's what we know that Eve didn't know. What we know that Eve didn't know. We know what the world looks like with man as the Lord. What does it look like, saints? (laughs) Look around the world today. How did this work out for you, Eve? How did it work out, Adam? My goodness. Truth number four. 
Satan's agenda was not Eve's liberation, but his own dominion. Now, we already talked about this a little bit. The Bible tells us that Satan, one of his names in the Bible, is the prince of the power of the air. 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul calls Satan the god of this world, lowercase g. He got what he was going after. When Adam and Eve no longer had the dominion that's going to be taken from them, it freed Satan to move in and to begin to manipulate and control things the way that he wanted to. When Satan tempted Jesus in Luke chapter 4, it says that he brought him to an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said, if you'll bow down and worship me, I will give you all of these kingdoms and the glory of them. Listen, because the power and glory of them has been given to me and I can give it to whosoever I want. And Jesus didn't say, oh yeah? Jesus knew. Satan had usurped authority over the world. That's what he wanted. It's what drove him. It's what moved him. And he is still doing that even unto this day. He's seeking to control this world. He took Eve's freedom for the sake of his own dominion. And then truth number five is that Satan desires to ruin your life. Jesus said that he was a liar and the murderer from the beginning. Jesus said the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And that is Satan's desire for every human being, especially the child of God. And the way that he is seeking to destroy every one of us is the same way that he sought to destroy Eve. He probes and observes. He's smarter than we are. He makes a plan. And then he seeks to bring temptation, desire, and opportunity all together, all at once. So the question that we're left with on the other side of seeing this tempter for the very first time in Genesis chapter 3 is what is our defense? How can we not see ourselves ruined as Eve was ruined? Well, number one is that you must be born again. If you don't know Jesus Christ personally and his redemptive work of the cross, you don't stand a chance. It's just a matter of time. I remember one time Mike Tyson was being interviewed about his success in the ring. And they said, how do you do it? You know, you beat everybody and you do it so quickly. And he said with the you know, crazy voice that he had for such a you know, big guy, you know, he, he said, oh, I just know that they're going to make a mistake sooner or later and I'm going to get them. It's just, it's just a matter of time. They're going to make a mistake and, I, and I'm going to be there ready. And that's what happened. Someone just dropped their hand for one second, boom, they wake up the next day and wonder what hit me, you know. And Satan has the same thing. He just looks at him and goes, I know they're going to drop their hand at some point, and I'm just going to, I'll be right there, and boom, I'm just going to take them right out. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you've got no chance. You will be blindsided. If you do know him, then we go on to number two, the Word of God. To know the Word of God. How did Jesus defeat the temptation of Satan? The Word of God. How do you and I defeat the temptation of Satan? The Word of God. The Word of God must be rooted in our heart and it must be the framework and the lens through which we see all of life. And if it's not, then our defenses are vulnerable. We must know what it means when Paul said we take every thought captive and we bring it under the obedience of Christ. It's essential. The Word of God in our lives constantly. Number three is that we've got to be in fellowship transparently with other believers in the Lord. There have got to be people in our lives that we're vulnerable with, that know us, that know our weaknesses, that can speak into our lives, that we can confess to them, that we can pray for one another, that we can lift one another up and help one another so that when temptation comes, there's an advocate. You're not standing there alone. And then number, th where are we? Four, is that we must bring our hearts to the Lord in faith and say, Lord, Cut out of this heart the desire for anything that is not of you within my life. The New Testament book of Romans calls that having our heart circumcised. Circumcision was cutting the flesh out. And to have the heart circumcised means that I've brought my heart to the Lord and I've said, Lord, you have permission to cut out of my life the desire for sinful things. It's a desire, Lord. I confess it. I want this. I like it. 
but I'm giving you permission, Lord, to take away that desire that I wouldn't want that thing in my life anymore. Listen, if you do those three things, you ground yourself in the word of God, you get yourself around other believers, and you bring your heart to the Lord for him to cut away the flesh, do you know what you've successfully done? By giving yourself to the word of God, you've undone temptation because we defeat temptation by the word of God. By being in fellowship with other believers, we've eliminated opportunity because now I'm accountable to somebody. And because I'm accountable to somebody, there's tabs being kept on what I'm doing with my time, what my struggles are, and it cuts opportunity out of the equation. And if I bring my heart to the Lord and ask him to cut away the desire for sinful things, I'm eliminating desire. And if I do those things, it's impossible for temptation, opportunity, and desire to come together all at once. And so not only do we know Satan's devices, but we know what our part is in remaining safe and not allowing those things to come together in our lives. The musicians can come as we close out our study tonight. And my final thought that I share with you as they approach the front and we close out the service is that defense isn't enough when it comes to this fight that we find ourselves in against this subtle, crafty, fallen angel. Is that there must be offense as well. His desire from the beginning is to control. He wants to control this world, and one day he will. He'll do it through the person of the Antichrist, and he will have absolute dominion over every corner and every soul of the planet, except for those remaining ones that still have their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation. But he will control every government, and he has been working tirelessly for the past 6,000 years to bring that control to bear upon mankind. And he's doing it. He's doing it very effectively. But listen, he is no match for our king. He's no match for the kingdom of God. He can't touch it. Prince of the power of the air. He gets in the sound system, cast him out. Mm. When revival breaks out, his whole thing gets messed up. It's It's a catastrophe for him. Because when revival breaks out in a place and the Holy Spirit begins to move and people start getting saved and the Spirit of God has an influence over an area, over a thing, he has to contain that. And he has to, re, he has to ruin it and then he has to hedge that back in. And it's kind of like this herniated thing that happens. You know, he's bringing everything in, he's trying to contain it all and then boom, God pours out his Spirit and poof, there's like this blasting of what he's been building up all of this time. And he can do nothing about it. He can't stop it. He can't do anything. Well, how does revival come? You know how it comes? It comes when you and I begin to pray. When you and I begin to get on our knees and we say, God, would you do something in this area? Would you affect souls? Would you bring light? Lord, would you visit the earth again like you have in times past? Would you pour out your spirit? And would there be something of you that's supernatural? Not, Lord, not church meetings, just endlessly going to church. But Lord, that you would be real in our lives, that your voice would be heard, that the songs that we sing wouldn't be words on a screen, that would be coming out of our hearts and out of our lives. Lord, do something so amazing, so powerful, so real. Bind the forces of darkness. Break the chains and the yokes that are binding people and blinding them from knowing your light. And when we begin to pray like that, God begins to work and he begins to move. But you can be certain of one thing. What you've just done you've started a pillow fight in Satan's Lego village. (laughs) He don't like that. And what I see happen in my own life, and I see it happen in Christians all over the place, is that we get into a nonverbal agreement with Satan where we say, okay, you stay away, and I'll just keep going, and I won't get in your way, and you don't get in my way. And Satan goes, I'm perfectly content with that. I'll give you just enough trouble to keep you preoccupied, but I won't blow things up on you too much. You just don't pray. And we go, okay, deal. And we go about our lives, and Satan goes about his plan. And lukewarmness, complacency, staleness, and little by little, he creeps, he creeps, he contains, he controls. 
So what's our offense? We have to pray. And then we have to endure. And then we have to pray, not only that God would pour out his spirit, but that he would protect those of us that are praying. And there's an offense side of this. So you and I have so much. We have resistance against temptation, and we have offense against the enemy. Father, we just thank you tonight, Lord, as we, as we finish this study and we look at these things, Lord, we thank you for what you've laid out, the wisdom that you've revealed and, and, the, and the things that you've given us to help. And we ask tonight, Lord, for those of us here that are in a season, a time of temptation, we ask, Lord, that you'd help us, Father. For those of us that have become stagnant in our prayer life and have allowed the kingdom of darkness to just rule and reign in this world, Lord, help us, strengthen us. We pray for those that pray, O oh God. And we ask that you would give boldness, wisdom, endurance, and covering. And so we thank you tonight for these things. We ask you to apply them as they need be in us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Thank you for your patience. Amen. Let's stand together.